When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. And we're your podcast of music discovery. Proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network and in, associ- in association with Pantheon, Ooh. we produce two other podcasts besides this one. What are they called, Matthew? Audio Judo. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Audio Judo does jazz, which is a solo hosted show about jazz greats and serves as a great introduction into the world of jazz. If you, like us, are rather intimidated by the music style and and uh, I've always wanted to get into it. We also offer a show called Throughline about finding the common thread on an album's worth of material. Sometimes that could be musical or lyrical or maybe something else. Go check out both those shows. You can find them both at audiojudo.com and click on the respective links at the top of the page. You can also find them at pantheonpodcast.com and on the Pantheon Podcast app, yeah. which is now available. It's brand new, apparently. Yeah. I didn't even know it was happening until I got a message today. It's like Pantheon Podcast app is now out available. And I was like, cool. I know. We got to uh, use that badge too. Right. Uh, now we also have content in addition to this show. Yes, Those would be our judo chops, but there's only one way you can get those. Kyle? You got to become a Patreon member. Oh boy. Uh, so there's uh, three tiers of Patreon membership. So I'm going to start in the middle because why not? The front row seats tier is our middle tier. It's $5 <laughs> a month. For five bucks a month, uh, you get a shout out by name at the end of every episode. Two day early access to full episodes, access to bonus mini episodes called judo chops that Matthew was just talking about, and occasional bonus bits such as unedited interviews, behind the scenes videos, and tiny little tidbits that got cut out of episodes, mostly, as I've said many times before, due to flatulence. You want to really help the podcast out and help yourself out a little bit, you can send up for the backstage pass tier. It is $20 a month. So it's a pretty big step up. But for that 20 bucks a month, you get to keep uh, all the stuff from the front row seats tier. Plus, uh, you get a very special personalized gift after three months at that tier. And the big one, you get a chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo on the episode, or excuse me, on the album of your choice, not the episode of your choice. That would be weird. That benefit maybe, activates. Maybe they want to talk about an old episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, the album I choose is episode seven of Audio Judo. That's weird. Hmm, all right. When that is would be that? weird. Is that uh, Costello? I don't remember. Me uh, this benefit uh, activates after one year of patronage at that tier and can only be activated once. If, however, both of those are a little bit much, but you still want to help the podcast out, you can do the Shout It Out Loud tier for only one of whatever your local currency is. That is dollars, euros, pounds. Uh, uh, what did I say last time? Quatlus, rubles. For only one of those a month, uh, you can help us keep making the podcast and in return, you'll get a shout out uh, on the the end of every future episode as long as you keep paying hey just so you know uh episode seven was rotating rosters Ooh, in case anyone's interested that's a good one that's a good episode we should do an a, a episode about that <laughs> now hold on i hope you give me a little bit of latitude at the beginning here okay I so will. kyle takes the reins this week heads back to an era that he seems uh, pretty comfortable in and i am fearful of treading the 1960s mm-hmm. uh, i'm so apprehensive about covering one of these records because there's so much distance and mileage between them and us and how much has been written about them, and it feels like a lot of pressure. There's a lot of weight to get things spot on. We always try to get things right on Audio Judo, but mm-hmm. I think with newer bands, there's a little more forgiveness if you get some details incorrect because a lot of that is still in motion. Yeah. So I feel there's a lot more pressure. This is now Kyle's fourth trip into the 1960s <laughs> following an episode on the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. the Zombies, mm-hmm. and the very recent Badfinger. And yeah. now... You also forgot Bowie. No, that was 71. 
Oh, that was 71. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. yeah. I didn't forget anything. So, sorry. Sorry, no. everybody. Sorry, everybody. Sorry. So now he goes prog on us mm-hmm. as we are here to talk about well, maybe the, prog. the 1968 we'll album In Search of the Lost Chord by the mm-hmm. British group, the, the Moody, Moody Blues. Blues. So I'm not sure because recently you've been picking records based on their merits, not necessarily your emotional attachment to mm-hmm. them. So is this one of those times when you are choosing a record based on its influence or do you know and love this record? Neither. So in all honesty, uh, I picked this record because I wanted something different from this era that was not something that I was incredibly familiar with already, but maybe is a little influential depending upon who you ask. Okay. Um, I, I, and you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the Moody Blues, not because I, you know, I just have never listened to them really heavily. So I kind of started to uh, dig around a little bit and I was like, what would be a good album to cover? And uh, in all honesty, Nights in White Satin is not my jam. So I was like, let's go with something different. And you go much later than this album when they start to become really famous and it gets a little too of its time, mm-hmm. even though this album is very much of its time, the future albums become a little too much of their time in a time where I don't really care about it. Okay. <laughs> This one was very different. It's um, kind of a, a psychedelic rock album, kind of like uh, the zombies a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, uh, heavily influenced by, you know, the the culture of the 1960s, uh, as we'll get into, mm-hmm. heavily influ- influenced by drugs, presumably. You see this look I'm giving you? Yeah. A little bit of a curious face. You see this look? Yeah. Take a good look. Are you about to because, uh, uh, bring up what I think you're about you to bring up? You have me vexed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what to make of what's happening. Okay. This is most likely uh, the way I'm going to look at you for the most of the episode, because I'm enough. confused. Uh, you picked a band mm-hmm. whose primary melody instruments are the Mellotron. Fine. Yes. Mm-hmm. Weird, but I know, fine. I know where you're going with this. And the flute. Mm-hmm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Wait, wait. You spent a good 20 minutes dogging another British band known for its use of the flute in rock music, Indeed. Jethro Tull. Yes. I believe what you said was... I hate Jethro Tull. Oh. <laughs> and I also think you said this, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I don't like... I don't think the flute has any place in rock music. And you may have even said this. It is the premier instrument on an entire album. Not not even just an album. It is the premier instrument for an entire band. Uh, no, thank you, sir. So I believe yes, those are I, all your words, correct? They are, they are correct, yes. Uh, so, uh, uh, Senator, I am here today. Please explain, because while not every song in the Moody Blues catalog relies on the flute, a lot of them do. True. Especially at the early part of their career. Go ahead. Psychedelic rock band. <laughs> That word, that word makes it completely okay, in my opinion. What? Yep. You call it a psychedelic rock band, and to me, Bullshit. completely different genre. It's not prog. It's not rock. It's a psychedelic rock band. Fits okay. The other thing I will say here, again, it's of the era. So Jethro Tull came out with their first album the same year that this album was released. Came out with their first album, but we didn't speak about their first album. No. So- <laughs> I, I'm not incredibly familiar with their first album, so maybe that one fits really well in that era, and it has a lot of psychedelic rock elements to it, and it would fit just fine. I hear a lot of two-step in here. I absolutely realize <laughs> I'm going to get fucking roasted, and we're going to get 20 angry emails from people who are like, see, we told you, motherfucker! Were you expecting the clips of yourself? No, I was not. <laughs> I got to be honest with you, I was not. I, I did go back and listen to the Jethro Tull episode again when I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to I just shot myself in the foot, didn't I? Uh, so I was prepared uh, uh, to talk about this a little bit. I get it. I, I said some really terrible things about Jethro Tull. And again, I, you know, uh, if you're a fan of Jethro Tull. Great. I got to tell you, that was really fun for me. I figured it would be. That you, was, you've that been was waiting fun. years for that, haven't you? I kind of I kind of have. You just had those queued up and ready to oh, go. I had them just cut. And I'm like. So with that out of the way, let's proceed. Shall we? Third album for the band. Yeah. Released in 68, uh, July of 68. Let's talk about the band a little bit first, shall we? Sure. So uh, the Moody Blues are an English psychedelic rock band. want to make sure that's very clear. <clears throat> but they actually started out as an R&B band, weirdly enough. It, that's that they have whatever sort of, you consider middle England white guy R&B. Yeah. That's what R&B is. They have kind of <laughs> switched genres every few years, honestly, and kind of evolved as they've grown as a band. And, um, they were originally formed in 1964 in Erdington. Erdington. Erdington, which Simon, is a suburb. Simon, if you're of, out there and we're pronouncing that wrong, just yes. go ahead and feel free to correct yeah. us. Uh, uh, a suburb of uh, Birmingham in England. Uh, Ray Thomas, John Lodge, and Mike Pinder uh, had been in the band with one, had been, excuse me, had been in a band with one another before called uh, El Riot and the Rebels. Was that supposed to be Spanish? El Riot? El Riot. And the Rebels. <laughs> I'm not sure. El Riot. That's E-L. Riot. El, El Riot. 
in the uh, Rebels? I would assume yes. That's weird. Um, but they disbanded when John went to technical college and Mike joined the Army. Uh, Mike Pinder and Ray Thomas later formed a band called the Crew Cats, uh, joined by Denny Lane on guitar and vocals and uh, Graham Edge on drums. Uh, they had actually approached John Lodge about playing bass in that, but he was busy with college. Graham or Graham? Graham. 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 I've always pronounced it Graham, but it may be Graham. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Graham. Graham. Uh, anyways, they recruited a guy named uh, Clint Warwick uh, instead uh, to play bass. Uh, they played for their first time as the Moody Blues in Birmingham in 1964. Uh, the name, by the way, is derived from the uh, Mitchells and Butler's Brewery. Local brewery, right? Yeah. Which the band was hoping to get a sponsorship from, but that never materialized. Yes, they uh, originally called themselves uh, the M and B's. Mm-hmm. The other theory about their name, which I believe is way more plausible, yes. is that Mike Pinder was interested in how music affects people's moods, and the band was performing blues-type music at the time, and may have also been a subtle reference to the Duke Ellington song Mood Indigo. Oh, such a good song. Either way, the Moody Blues were born, and they became the in-house band at the Carlton Ballroom. Yeah. Uh, they ended up signing with a management company, uh, Ridge Pride, in spring 1964, and they began releasing singles. Uh, Steal Your Heart Away, which failed to chart. Go Now, which released late in 1964. It did much better, thanks to this new-at-the-time idea of creating a promotional film to support the song, which what? they played on television at night. Get out of here. Crazy idea, right? That one actually went to number one in the UK and number 10 in the US. That's kind of crazy. Right? I went back and listened to this song, and I'm like, yeah, I have no recollection of this at all. <laughs> it does. Yeah, I did not the same even thing. a little bit. I watched the music, the music video to it, and it's just them standing and singing. And it's kind of like, oh, OK, cool. This launched a, yeah, it, you know, the future of music, basically. But they were so you said they had signed with a management agency yes. called Ridge uh, Ridge Pride. Yes. And they signed a lease back agreement mm-hmm. with Decca Records. Yes. This um, is very important. And then, so that career or that uh, single goes to number one, that and that caused a lot of management issues. Yeah. So they dropped Ridge Pride and signed directly with Decca, eventually freeing more money from the band because yeah. there was no middleman exactly. at that point. Uh, and in case anybody doesn't know, the lease back idea is the record label will basically pay for everything and give you money up front. And then when your album starts to sell, you don't get any money from it because they collect it all first. Because you've got a debt to pay. Exactly. So um, their debut album in 1965, The Magnificent Moody's. Oh, my God. Was produced by Denny Cordell. That's uh, a head smacker right, right there. The it, Magnificent Moody's. Did okay on the, it didn't chart, but it did okay sales-wise. They released some more singles after that, called uh, including uh, I Don't Want to Go On Without You, which reached number 33 in the UK in 1965. From the Bottom of My Heart, I Love You, number 22 in the UK in 1965 as well. Every Day went to number 44 in October 1965. So they're charting at this point. Yeah. And it was a, you know, R&B-ish. Yeah, uh, pop and skiffle, which was very popular sound in England in the mid to early 60s. And uh, but then they released Bye Bye Bird, mm-hmm. which charted at number three in France, mm-hmm. which renewed interest in the band, both in Europe and in the States. Yeah. Uh, about that same time, uh, Clint Warwick retired from music and Denny Lane uh, left shortly after in October 1966. So the band sort of regrouped and reformed in November 19, 1966 with John Lodge on bass and Justin Hayward on guitar and vocals. Uh, like you said, they played a bunch of covers. Uh, a bunch of R&B covers, but at the same time, they started to finally create a lot more of their own unique works. Mm-hmm. It was at the same time that their uh, contract with Decca expired and they owed a lot of money to Decca. Yeah. So they actually agreed to do a rock and roll version of Anton Dvorak's New World Symphony to promote Decca's Dramic Stereo sound, yeah. which but they would have like a fucking. They would have forgiven their debt entirely, mm-hmm. which was huge. Yeah. And the band agreed to it as long as they maintained creative control over that project, and that project would eventually be abandoned. Yeah. And I couldn't find any more mention of it or whether or not that debt was ever forgiven. No, I couldn't either. Uh, but they did, while working on that, basically create their next album, which is called Days of Future Past, which released on November 1967. It went to number 27 on the British charts. Five years later, it went to number three on the U.S. Billboard charts, which seems like a- But why? Because this album that we're going to talk about came out. And, and uh, well, five years later, it was because Knights in White Satin- Yes. Had, was released again, because Knights in White Satin is on Days of U- yes. Future Past, but wasn't that big of a deal until years later. Yeah. Anyways, th- like you said, that album re- uh, introduced the songs Night and Sin- Ugh, Jesus, English. That album introduced Knights in White Satin and Tuesday Afternoon, one of their other early big hits. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I would say it took a long time for it to catch on in the UK and the US, but it eventually launched them into that next level. It was fairly successful as a concept piece, or as it was called back then, a song cycle. 
following a bit in the Beatles' footsteps with use of classical instrumentation, framing things like a piece of classical music or, or one continuous piece of music. Uh, but it was uh, the style they would recreate for their next album, the album we're going to talk about today, yeah. right? In, so- in Search of the Lost Chord. And lest you think the Moody's are um, sort of a, an unknown band, worldwide they have sold over 70 million albums. That's a nuts number. Including 18 platinum or gold albums. So, (laughs) you know, it's crazy to think like this is a band that doesn't even register on most people's, you know, lifespan of their music. And it's like, oh, yeah, not anymore. They're huge. As we said at the outset, this album was released in July 1968, was fairly successful, reached number five on the UK album chart, number 23 on the US Billboard chart. That's not bad. Neither one of the two singles charted in the US, but Voices in the Sky reached number 27 on the UK singles chart. Uh, the album was recorded at the Decca Studios in West Hampstead, just outside of London, again, assisted by their de facto sixth member at this point, Tony Clark. Yeah. Decca Studios is famous for being the location where the Beatles failed their audition for Decca <laughs> in 62, ending up with Parlophone Records instead. Whoops. Whoopsie. We missed one. Somebody lost a job over that. For our purposes, though, the Zombies, a band we talked about a few months ago, recorded their hit, She's Not There, at mm-hmm. this particular studio. And unfortunately, like most studios of that era, it is now closed, being shut down in 1980. I'm sure it's been completely demolished by this point. I would imagine so. And this album itself- It's luxury condos now. Is full-blown- Cosmic Psychedelia. Yeah, it is. It's a concept album. Uh, has themes of discovery, world exploration, philosophy, lost love, spiritual development, imagination, space exploration, and so much more. Right? From the album cover to the sounds included to the names of some of the songs, House of yeah. the Four Doors, Legend of the Mind, Voices in the Sky. Oh, oh yeah. We're going there. Oh, yeah. And this should be an interesting trip. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Get it? I trip. see what you did there. Should be fun. Tons of influence in here as well uh, from uh, uh, Indian uh, music, uh, mm-hmm. which I, I love. The name itself, according to Mike Pinder, comes from uh, Jimmy Durant's song, I'm the Guy That Found the Lost Chord. Uh, that song in itself is a reference to The Lost Chord by Sir Arthur Sullivan. That, The Lost Chord, is a song composed by the bedside of Arthur's brother, Fred, while he was laying dying. Uh, the lyrics were originally written by Adelaide Ann Proctor in a poem called A Lost Chord, published in 1858 in the English Woman's Journal. So this is an album title based on a song, based on a song, based on a poem. Mm -hmm. You got it? I tracked it. How these inspired one another, I have no idea, but this is what those original songs sound like. Seated one day at the organ I was weary and ill at ease And my fingers wandered idly My piano the other day, my mind was ill at ease. They were coming to take it away that afternoon. I was all by myself in a mellow mood, improvising symphonies. My right hand was playing Mozart's minuet, and at the same time, my left hand was playing Have a Banana from Carmen, and at the same time, my mouth was whistling a sextet from Luigi's. And while all this was going on, what do you think my foot was doing? While keeping time, it was quacking walnuts. You see, I had to eat two. See, you had to eat two. <laughs> so somehow, <laughs> this this very classical hymnal <laughs> song that is based on a poem uh, that was performed, written by Sir Arthur Sullivan and performed, you know, on an organ, was then taken by Jimmy Durant, uh, Durante and turned into a comedy song. Yeah. And somehow that inspired them to name this album In Search of the Lost Chord. What? <laughs> How? Uh, anyways, recording for this album began in January 1968. The Moody Blues themselves played all the instruments on this album. There are 33 of them total. Uh-huh. Uh, a re- lot. Yeah. It ended up reaching number five on the UK album charts, number 23 on the Billboard 200 in the US. Uh, the single uh, Voices in the Sky went to number 27 in the UK. It is certified gold in the US with 500,000 sold. Silver in the UK with 60,000 and Platinum in Canada with 100,000 units sold. Matthews, what? Let's talk about the cover. This is a great album cover. So appropriate for the time, spot on for the content inside. How do you even describe this? I couldn't write a description of this. Oh, I said, you want to describe it, Kyle? Because I couldn't. Yeah, it's... (laughs) 
Go look it up. It's there's so much detail to it. it the original is a painting by Phil Travers. It's two skulls kind of thing. Go yeah. you just go look at it because yeah. it's all my notes. Oh boy. Yeah, Phil Travers um did several covers for the Moody Blues over the years. Um, and he had this to say about this cover. Quote, while I was listening to the music, the concept for the cover was actually given to me in some sort of subliminal way. The recording and mixing area of the studios were where I was sitting was separated from the area where the band would play by a large glass window. And in this glass, I could see several images of myself, one above the other, almost as if I was ascending up into space. He was high. Right? The band wanted me primarily to illustrate the concept of meditation. This was not something that I had much personal experience of. And so my initial thoughts about such an ethereal subject were unfortunately insubstantial. And so I wasn't producing any cohesive visual ideas with this lack of ideas evident in my first rough designs. In fact, as time was getting short by the way, everything was always wanted in a hurry. I was starting, I was starting to panic. It was then that the image in the glass window of a figure ascending came back to me. And after that, everything just fell into place. I'm pretty sure he was fucking stoned really high he was high on something inside sure. the gate which is great for the album mm-hmm. were tantric chants which relates to the album yeah. as a whole is very and very strange phil travers ended up designing like you said several more album covers for the moody blues up until 72 worked for some other bands like mm-hmm. trapeze very accomplished artist yeah. his work can be found does at some, uh philiptravers.co.uk yeah he does some beautiful landscapes as well you have more about the album cover no, that's about all it's, I got. it's cool but it's hard to describe yes now as far as my familiarity with the Moody Blues goes, you'd be surprised to find out that it is fairly limited. Fair enough. You would think that the fact that they are A, British, B, proggy, C, heavily into mind-altering substances at the early part of their career, D, contain a flute, Mm -hmm. and E, have interesting lyrics that talk about stuff instead of love all the time, that they would be right in my wheelhouse. I should, by all accounts, love this band. Mm. Uh, And while I like them all right, uh, that's where it ends. Mm. When it came down to listening to this record, I found that I knew two or three songs from it. Obviously, I knew Ride My Seesaw, I know very well, because it's been played on classic rock radio for as long as I can remember. Legends of the Mind definitely appealed to me because of its particular content, which we'll talk about. Indeed. And it was a regular track on a radio show that I used to listen to all the time called Headphones Only. Oh. Voices in the Sky, I know, but I'm not sure where I knew it from, but I think it was just a matter of timing. Hmm. Uh, And when I heard Nights in White Satin for the first time, you know, I was a bit turned off. That's not on this record, but I, you know, familiar with that song. Around that time, I was listening to much harder, much more aggressive music, Mm -hmm. and it just sounded like Muzak or something my grandpa parents might like, especially the re-release of it with really heavy string parts and and such. So I was bored. They kind of faded out of memory. And the next time that I heard from them was uh, the song Your Wildest Dreams from the mid 80s. Yeah. Uh, And it was so thin sounding that again, I was bored. Listening to this record for research didn't do much to quell that, however. Uh, While some of the songs are pretty good, that era of music, the late 60s, that kind of stuff other than the Beatles is kind of lost on me. Even Heather liked this band, so I really tried through the years to like their stuff, and I just can't get into it. It's uh, it's not bad. It's just not for me. Fair enough. Um, I can appreciate it for its influence and its innovation, but the sound quality made me sad, and so many other bands seem to be chasing the Beatles all the time that it just made me bored. <laughs> uh, but I'm happy to be talking about it today. Cool. Well, should we take a quick break? We'll come back and do a track by track? Sure. Departure. Mm. First song on this album. It's a spoken word piece. Yeah. Written and performed by Graeme Edge. Uh, there are two of these on the record. Seems to be a staple of early Moody Blues records. This whole first section is about the five senses and awareness of the five senses, something very significant in meditation, mm-hmm. awareness, internal awareness of your surroundings. Uh, he kind of mumbles the words at first. Yeah. And then they clear up. And at the end, uh, as he ends the piece, he gets more and more frantic. Yeah, he gets in this maniacal laughter, which is very unsettling when you're sober. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you're high, this could be equally unnerving. <laughs> this could be incredibly terrifying. And I think that's the point. High enough. The departure is the traveling inside your head, yeah. which is the searching for the lost chord. Yeah. It'll come back. That, that theme comes back around over and over and over again. Oh, this yeah, album. it does. This is an interesting introduction to this album, I think. It's definitely a quick buildup. I mean, it's only like 45 seconds long, and it's this quick buildup into fairly calm to frantic very quickly and immediately bleeds right into the next song. 
uh, ride my seesaw. Graham here is reading his own poetry, which is rare. Uh, this is one of the few times he does it. Mm-hmm. Um, he usually has somebody else do it. And it's backed up by this orchestral sound and some sounds from the Mellotron and guitar and sitar. And it sounds like this. burst up through tarmac to the sun again or to fly to the sun without burning a wing to lie in a meadow and hear the grass sing to have all these things in our memories hold and they use them to help us to <laughs> and then he starts laughing manically and then it bleeds into ride my seesaw that last lyric is cut off uh, because graham begins laughing hysterically like i just said a lot of people say that it should probably be the lost chord because that fits lyrically and poetically with the, the line that being said does it need to be i mean it's a typical it's exactly what i i would expect from a 60s psychedelic record yeah that's what I expect. Right? It's very stereotypical, but it's uh, it's fun. And like I said, it bleeds right into uh, Ride My Seesaw, Man. which is probably the song that a lot of people will recognize from this album. This is a rocker, even for 68, propelled yeah. by that driving acoustic guitar line and the addition of maracas and tambourines, give it a jangly sound to it, add in the thick voices, and it's a successful piece that has stood the test of time for 54 years. Yeah. Song was released as a single, got to number 42 in the UK, number 61 in the US, certainly not indicative of its longevity. I feel like in 1968, this should have been very appealing to the kids. Yeah. As the whole record is a quest for discovery, looking inward, the song itself is about knowledge in a changing world. He's kind of figuring out what he's been wasting his life, chasing the things that don't matter, work, money, those trappings, and he's looking to be free, which is very much the hippie culture of the day. Yeah. Get away from all of the, quote, responsibilities of life and just live free. That's what this song is about. But I didn't used to think that. Hmm. When I was growing up, because I couldn't understand a lot of the words other than the chorus, I thought this song was about sex. Oh. Like Chuck Berry's song, My Dingling, he got away with singing about his dick for years because it sounded cute and was fashioned <laughs> in a way that made you question it, but not really seriously. Maybe he wasn't talking about his dick. No, he totally was talking about his dick. In that same vein, I thought they were getting away with talking about sex by using a playground toy that goes up and down. Fair Very enough. clever, Moody Blue. Very clever. Turns out I was wrong. The seesaw is just the ups and downs of his life. And he's just saying, ride this wave of my life. Sometimes I'm up, sometimes down, but always searching and questing for knowledge. Oops, Matthew, I fucked that one up. But I think you nailed it on the head. This song is about what the rest of this album is about. It's about opening your mind to discovery and exploration. It was written by John Lodge, uh, and it's become one of the Moody Blues like staples at their concerts. They generally save it for the lead into the encore whenever they perform it live, uh, and it sounds a little bit like this. I definitely agree with you that I can't believe this isn't a bigger song from this era. Yeah. Um, it seems like it was definitely fell between the cracks for some reason. It's obviously a famous song. A lot of people recognize it. A lot of people know it, but it, I feel like it should be bigger. Well, in addition to its popularity on rock radio for the last 50 years, yes. it was also used as bumper music on Art Bell's alien show Coast to Coast oh. for many years. And I used to work the swing shift dispatching tow trucks for AAA back in the mid 90s. <laughs> and one of the guys there was obsessed with aliens and would listen to this show every goddamn night. <laughs> so I remember this song being played all the time. And it just like, pop, I'm like, God damn it. Are you listening to our bell again? Yeah. yeah he's, he's got some cool stuff to say. Okay. I'm not talking to you anymore. 
Folks, you have to understand that the Pentagon knows the aliens are here. They uh, know right. the aliens are here. It's a weird show. I can't do an art. It's film, a weird right? show. Yeah. Dr. Livingston, I presume. Dr. Livingston, I presume. So first of all, I'm just going to get this right out of the way. What the fuck is this song doing on this album? It strikes me as a bit of a parody song, does it not? Well, so my my thing on this is, I, not only do I think it's a little bit of a parody song, I think you're supposed to be like, if you just listen to it casually, you're like, oh, these are all great explorers. And sure. then it's like, oh, actually, these are all people who caused major like genocides. <laughs> Just a couple essentially, of, a couple essentially, of genocides. you know, just a few. Uh, this is written and sung by Ray Thomas. This reminds me. Go ahead. Uh, I would say Doctor Livingston. I presume, in case you don't know, is the now famous uh, greeting spoken on the shores of Lake Tanganyika uh-huh. uh, in November 1871 by Welsh American journalist and explorer Henry okay. M. Stanley. Uh, the moment was uh, the culmination of Stanley's expedition to locate explorer and missionary David Livingston, who'd been missing in Africa for more than four years. This was a time, obviously, where white people from Europe were based. Basically like, let's go explore Africa. There's nothing there. <laughs> you know, there was a whole culture and, you know, an entire, you know, thousands of people there, millions of people there. And so anyways. Well, it's it strikes me as a parody song. It reminds me a lot of Ringo Starr's Octopus's Garden Yellow yes. Submarine. It's another song about searching, and this time utilizes three explorers to illustrate how far and wide they searched. And while they did find a lot of things, they never found exactly what any of them were looking for. Dr. Livingston was a British explorer, missionary, scientist, anti-slavery crusader, expansionist, and colonialist, which does not go together with anti-slavery crusader that seems like a weird... So wait, you wanted to colonize Africa, but you were against the slave trade. I still think he was against the slave trade because he knew that white people... People weren't making money off. We're not, yeah. So his story took place in the 1800s. It's taken in almost mythic, legendary proportions. He walked across the African landscape, would disappear for months on end. I read an entire book about this whole story, yeah. and it's fascinating, but also kind of not believable. Um, he was obsessed with learning what the source of the Nile River was and felt that if he could find it, his fame could help facilitate the end of the slave trade. Yeah. I'm not sure how those two connect, but those are bold ideas. But you know, find a common thread here because that's weird. Well, the other, he, go oh, ahead. I would say the other thing is he was basically doomed because he, unlike other explorers of the time, at least at the very least, picked guides that knew the areas. He basically picked people who were slaves. Yeah. <laughs> Which in another horribly ironic twist of fate, he's like, no, no, I'll just take these people who, you know, look like they know what they're doing and can carry my bags and things. And then he ended up getting lost for many years at a time. I'm going to loan you the book because oh, okay. you, you should read it because it's fascinating, Wh- but remarkably not believable. Which one is it? Because there's about two dozen written on it's, it. It's the most recent one. Okay. I can't remember the name of it. It's it's in my Because I know that he's, upstairs. so it's another thing that takes place in all three of these heroes or heroes that we're going to talk about yeah. here is they started out as heroes. They were then vilified. And sure. then a lot of times now in modern history, people are going back and being like, well, actually he was a slavery abolitionist. And it's like, well, yeah, but he still did a bunch of shitty things. This is not necessarily a great guy. Yeah. Same but thing with uh, Robert Falcon Scott. Robert Falcon Scott, uh, right? Royal Navy explorer who led two expeditions to the Arctic in 1901 and 1910, the second one being a doomed expedition. Mm-hmm. A lot of people died. Yeah, he missed uh, uh, Roald Amundsen's arrival there by five weeks. So yeah. it's five weeks behind finding the South Pole, yeah. as if we were in the final um, eventually. But again, he's another person who, when he was written about originally, he was a hero. He was, oh, you know, he almost found the South Pole. He, you know, oh, saved a bunch of people that could have died. And then later on, in history, it was like, well, actually, he kind of made a bunch of really rash, bad decisions that probably killed a lot of people. Yeah. And then now in modern history, they're looking back at it again and saying, well, he didn't know or. But they're know. doing the same thing with Columbus. Exactly. The third I, hero from this song. Right. Because I. Hero. They, he was, you know, the the Voyager and and, yeah. and all that founded America. And, and then he was a horrible slave trader guy. And now again, I, I read a book about his last voyage there rehabilitating it. And while the truth is for all three of these, it's probably somewhere in the middle, especially with even Dr. Livingston, that the line, you know, Dr. Livingston, I presume to which, you know, he said, uh, yes, it's most likely a complete fabrication that that never happened, but it's become lore. And Henry Stanley tried to get him back to London, but he said that his work wasn't finished, wandered back into the jungle and eventually they never found him again. Yeah. I I, I believe as most things, the truth is in the middle somewhere in between those two. The song itself sounds like this. Someone. 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 
stoned a bejesus out of it. At some so. point, <laughs> at some point in the future, we're going to talk about the chronic. <laughs> Uh, and we're going to have to do it very carefully, but I feel like we should probably get stoned when we do that. Oh, one. that'd be fun. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so while the verses that are very childlike, yeah. the choruses are solid. Yeah. And while obviously a product of their time, you know, the 1960s, I love that super thickness of the vocals, almost over loud in the mix. Yeah. The chorus, We're All Looking for Someone, was used as the theme song for a children's uh, show from the UK called The Tyrant King. Oh. <laughs> About kids following a mysterious character around London. That huh. show was known for using the music of the very, very young Rolling Stones, the Moody Blues, the very, very young Pink Floyd, and the Nice through its run. So, yeah, they were huh. at the forefront of putting really legitimate music Weird. onto a kid's show. Onto a kid's show. Right? Interesting. But uh, definitely this song, like like you said, it's a parody song. It's a, supposed to be somewhat comedic, I think. Mm. But at the same time, it's also like, oh, yeah, these are all three people who were horrible people, but we look at them as heroes. So, And they're also looking at them in the 60s. Like That's I said, true. We've had 54 years of, true. of continual looking back. The House of Four Doors, part one. Part one. Now we get some full-blown psychedelic yeah. situations. This is uh, clearly, you know, building on those themes of discovery and exploration and opening your mind. Uh, this is a reference directly to Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, I think. Yeah, which named The Doors. Yeah. Yeah. Part one, uh, part one is a search for an appreciation of music. Opening line gets you right in. Mystery spread its cloak across the sky. We'd lost our way. That's what I'm talking about right there. Yeah. yeah. It relies heavily on strings, and I think a lot of that is thickened up by the Mellotron. And again, the double-tracked or stacked vocal lines are very effective. The verses give me a bit of a Jefferson Airplane. Oh, yeah. Or early, very early Jethro Tull vibe to them, but the choruses are something else entirely. I know. They have a very church-like <laughs> quality or yeah. hymn sound to them. The melody line used in the chorus is very reminiscent of stuff I used to sing in Catholic Church growing up. It's not bad. Just wondering if that was intentional because those melody lines that I used to sing in church have been used and around for a long time. Yeah. These are not like products of the 60s. They've been around forever. I think that was definitely intentional. And I also think like one of the weird set offs in this whole, this track is the sound of the doors themselves opening. Mm -hmm. It's this loud squeaking noise. And in the clip that I'm about to have Randy play, that's where it opens with the noise of one of the doors of perceptions opening. It sounds like this. some WD-40. <laughs> Uh, the middle section, which I suppose doubles as the bridge mm -hmm. or the solo section, ramps up that flute usage, doubles down with Mellotron, accompanied by some great finger picking by Mike Pinder. This guy, Mike Pinder. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting cat, right? He left the Moody Blues in 1978 before embarking on an unsuccessful solo career years later and moved his family from England to Grass Valley, California, where he took a job with a fledgling gaming company named Atari. Huh. And began working on music synthesis, blending music into video games. Interesting. He returned to the music in the mid-90s and was eventually voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018 with the rest of the Moody Blues. But I think that's a really interesting story if you dig down into Mike Pinder, because he just yeah. disappeared off the map to go apparently make sounds for combat yeah. or a... Uh, Beep. Or uh, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what Pong. Uh, the only thing I don't like about this this song is I feel like the metaphors are a little heavy handed. Like they're just well, whacking duh. you over the head with them. Like, Matthew, <laughs> <laughs> open your mind. <laughs> Well, got to be told, right? I mean, you got to be told. I mean, if you're that high, you have to be reminded. You know what else? If you're that high, you have to have a legend of a mind. Oh, yeah. This is one of the songs that I know from this record, mm -hmm. me being a proponent of LSD for many, many years back in the day. Song was written by the band's flautist, uh, Ray Thomas, who also- I won't, I won't hold that against the song. Who also provides the lead vocals on the track. The song is an ode to one of the fathers of LSD and the biggest public face of the drug, Timothy Leary. 
Timothy Leary famously said, tune in, turn on, and drop out, lines that were repeated ad nauseum during the 1960s to reflect the hippie movement. I also learned something amazing What's that, that I did not know about Timothy Leary. I knew he ran for governor of California. Yes. California. I did not know that he ran against Ronald Reagan <laughs> for governor of California in 1970, and his slogan was, come together, join the party, and his campaign song, which was written by John Lennon, is Come Together. Come Together. It was written for Timothy Leary. Yeah. For his gubernatorial candidate uh, run. He was a crazy dude. Bonkers. Very, very uh, interesting person. He often used Eastern uh, mysticism to talk about the psychedelic experience, uh, a way of looking inward, to use that drug as a, as instead of a way to expand your mind, but to also look inward. This is what they were seeking in the song, the inward. The first line of the song, uh, Timothy Leary's dead. No, no, no. He's outside looking in. Very <laughs> meditative process. And you can see why it was so popular amongst musicians of that day because of the constant looking inwards. That's where the best songs were going to come from, from inside. So it was a constant search for expanding the mind and pulling those things from within. And I didn't really know that this was called Legend of a Mind my whole life. I thought this song was called Timothy Leary's Dead hmm. because of how often that's repeated. He would not be dead, though, until 1996. Yeah. Musically, the song so uh, starts off with what sounds like a sitar. Uh, if it is, it's played by Justin Hayward. Uh, that sound immediately references the Beatles songs by George Harrison, yeah. Love You Too, or With Him Without You. Both songs rife with looking in references. It is also the longest song on the album, clocking in at 6 minutes 37 seconds, primarily because it has a two-minute flute solo. Even by my standards, two minutes is a long time. It is a very for long a flute solo. <laughs> flute solo in the middle of this song. And what I wrote about that was, hmm... <laughs> Here's well here, deconstructed. Here's a clip of not the flute solo. Along the coast, you'll hear them boast about a light they say that shines so clear. So raise your glass, we'll drink a toast to the little man who sells you thrills along the pier. He'll take you up, he'll bring you down He'll plant your feet back firmly on the ground He flies so high, he swoops so low He knows exactly which way he's gonna go But, you know, we're starting to hear much more heavily the Indian musical influences oh, here. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, starting to get, you know, a little more psychedelic-y, even more so than the first I couple of songs were. I love that song still. Yeah, it's good. I, I don't like know it. why. Uh, House of Four Doors Part 2. It's a short little uh, tune under two minutes. Yeah. But That's it still makes this feel like there's a lot more than four doors to me. Right. Well, <laughs> this is a search. Well, the first part was a search for music. Mm -hmm. This is a search for philosophy or understanding. Yes. Musical theme of the song returns. Uh, this time it's a little stilted, almost martial-like, like you're coming to the end of maybe a funeral procession. Uh, the up upbeat quality of part one is replaced with timpani and tambourine, much more somber than it was before. Uh, and if you are thinking like a 60s artist, you have designs on ending the first half of of the vinyl with this song. Yeah. So the crafting of it is perfect because that will just fade into the grooves. It's not necessarily the greatest song in the world, but it's effective nonetheless. Yeah, it fits really good on the original album. And I it think sounds so. like this. exactly what you were talking about, Matthew, where there's the long fade out and it just kind of goes right into the center groove and then... 
Like if you're too high, you might forget to flip that record over and then you just forget about it. Yeah. And be like, I'm freaking out. Right. Uh, I think it's a nice bookend to Legend of the Mind. I think so. Having both of them before and after it, I think it fits really well. It's a strong first side of a record. Yeah. I like it. Flip it over. Voices in the Sky. Oh, first God. song, right? It's the most successful single off the record at the time of its release, getting to number 27 on the UK chart, written by Justin Hayward. And this is the other side of the Moody Blues, for mm-hmm. sure. The prog elements are, for the most part, gone. It has this lighter lighter than air quality to it. It's weird. The song just kind of floats around for a while, and I didn't get this sound for a long time. I didn't like it Mm -hmm. or appreciate it. But as I get older, I seem to appreciate songs like this more and more. It's delightful. And I told you that I went and saw Christopher Cross. Yeah. Like, I liked Christopher Cross back in the 80s. It was fine. You know, I like theme from Arthur and all that, and Moon in New York City. It's a cool song. But I listened to the whole record, that first record, and I'm like, God damn, I dig this record. Record. And am I getting soft? No, I think I'm appreciating different sounds more and yeah. more uh, uh, universal. Would you say that you're opening your mind to new explorations and experiences? Uh, that is what I would say. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. His voice in the song reminds me of either like Gordon Lightfoot oh, or yeah. someone else from that era. And I just can't quite figure out who I'm thinking of. It sounds like a light 70s folk song uh, than a song off of a very heavy psychedelic album from the 60s. It's kind of out of time a little bit. Uh, the flute, the mellotron that mimics the bird calls, you know, it's pretty sweet. Mm, the flute. <laughs> I uh, I enjoy the flute. There's a lot of flute in this song. I know. I like the flute. My note is I wrote, oh God, the flute again. I'll never hear the end of this. <laughs> Here's yeah, a clip way, of what this like sounds like. clip way too long you made it appropriately long (laughs) (laughs) i was like oh my god what did i do i love that song it's very good and i agree i 100 agree with you gordon lightfoot sounding okay good in a good way i wasn't going crazy yeah no uh the best way to travel matthew it's another song about tripping yep or as music journalists said about it, keyboard players Mike Pinder's This Is The Best Way To Travel on the Search For The Lost Chord album is one of the great, the greatest show me the universe and get me home for tea acid songs ever. <laughs> That's a great quote. Right? That's wonderful. That's an accurate description. <laughs> the melody for this song is great. Uh, that quick strumming acoustic guitar. There's some great sitar work from uh, Justin Hayward. Uh, he's been with the Moody Blues since this record, or since the second record. And, and other than a little dab dabbling here and there in solo work. It's only been with them. And I didn't write that in my notes, but I was thinking about it when I was when I was uh, typing this out. Almost everybody in this band, this is it. Yeah. Very little stuff outside of the Moody Blues. This has been their whole world. Yeah. Other than the occasional solo uh, step. But this is it for them, which is crazy. Yeah. It's weird to think, too, that they were an incredibly famous band for 30 years. Yeah. And it was just this. They right. weren't splitting off. They weren't doing solo projects. It was just And people still don't know who the hell they are. Yeah. But the song makes really generous use of stereo panning. Yes. As it ping pongs back and forth from speaker to speaker. This is definitely a headphone song. Right. Lyrics like this, it's exactly what uh, you want it to do. And you can fly high as a kite if you want to, faster than light if you want to, speeding through the universe. Thinking is the best way to travel. So song, oh, go ahead. Oh, I say it just sounds like this. Light passing by on screen And there's you and I on a beam 
What album did you talk about? Talking about Stoned? Oh, The Chronic. Oh, yeah. That'd be okay. great. All right. <laughs> Are you stoned right now because you forgot the I album that we well, about? No, I'm just old. I'm going to put it on the list. Uh, but uh, I'm just old. Again, we have to be very careful talking about that album. But yeah. Uh, uh, the song is all about using the power of your imagination. Yeah. So you can travel anywhere you want to, either on Earth or in the universe. Mm-hmm. Power is all inside. And what a beautiful idea, too. The idea that, you know, even though this is an album that's obviously very heavily influenced by drugs. Uh, Whoa. What? Uh, the here. idea that, you know, maybe yeah. you don't even need those. You can just think about things and imagine anything you want. No, you need them. Oh, okay. Are the drugs part of your vision of paradise, Matthew? Oh, yeah. It's a simple little song about yeah. the songwriter's view of what paradise would be. Yeah, it's literally describing David Hayward and Ray Thomas's vision of paradise. I love the sitar in this. Take a quick listen to it. Obviously, real heavy flute there. Right. Rainbows on the it's hill, okay. blue onyx on the sea. Six and 12 string acoustic guitars, sitar, bass, cello, mellotron, tambura, alto flute, oboe, assorted percussion. But it's really just a finger pick, six string, and a flute. Most of the other stuff gets washed away in the mix. Hayward said this, said that it was a nice collaboration between him and Ray Thomas, the first of many. And he said this about it. Other guys were writing in the studio, going, imitating a high-pitched, wavering mellotron. <laughs> <laughs> through a progression of chords. So Ray and I found this broom cupboard that was attached to the studio. I'd go there with my acoustic guitar and flute, and we would write these songs. It had a soundproof door so that the cleaners didn't disturb us. It also had an entrance from the corridor that was soundproof. It was a sealed little place. Everything that we wrote together, including Visions of Paradise, all of those things were written there. That is such an amazing time yeah. to be around music. So much creativity. Can you imagine just jamming yourself in that closet right there to write a song <laughs> on flute and guitar nowadays? before no. you record something else. No way. No way. That's just a, it's such a crazy experience. Like, like they're probably in the studio for 15 hours a day. They're all just sitting around and he's like, I got an idea. Come with me. And Let's like, go in the broom closet for well, a minute okay, together. Well, so I don't think I like your ideas, Justin. Matt, do you want to get in the broom, broom closet, closet with me for a few minutes? No, we'll work not, on something. What are you going to do with that flute? I've got my flute. No, what are you going to do with that flute? Yeah, I know you're not going to play it. You hate the flute. Do you have an oboe we could so, take in there with us? It's got two reeds. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh boy. Don't say English. <laughs> the actor. Ah, the actor. Another David Hayward pen song. Yeah. It's a song about loves, love and drugs. You mean, you mean Justin Hayward? I'm sorry. Yes, Justin Hayward. I wrote David Hayward for some reason. <laughs> It's fairly... Uh, Wait a minute. What? I have David Hayward written twice on Why here. do you have David Hayward written? I don't know. That's not his name. No, it's not. It's Justin Hayward. Sorry. It's fa fairly standard fare as the search in the song is essentially for lost love. Yeah. Uh, and you can tell that this is written by Justin Hayward as his songs have a certain uh, light style to them. One more suited to adult contemporary than prog psych music. And they are, and I'm not sure if this is the word that I have ever ascribed to music before, floatier. Floatier. They're floatier. And the flute helps to soften the song on all edges, like I should be chasing butterflies or something. It's so sweet. And while the musical part of the song is light and airy, the words are sad and introspective. Indeed. They're very heavy. Right? And, and it's kind of a little trippy song that has a very heavy message to it. The curtain rises on the scene with someone shouting to be free. The play unfolds before my eyes. There stands the actor who is me. That's not bad. Yeah. It kind of stands in contrast to the tone of the song, though. It's an all right song, but fairly, uh, it's kind of forgettable. Yeah, it sounds like this.
Uh, yeah, interesting little song. Very heavy lyrics. And heavy flute. And heavy flute. I know, you enjoyed it. <laughs> the word. The word. Closing poem to bookend departure at the beginning. Very short spoken word piece by Graeme Edge, mm-hmm. recited by Mike Pinder. Yep, sounds like this. This garden universe vibrates complete. Some we get a sound so sweet. Vibrations reach on up to become light. And then through gamma, out of sight. Between the eyes and ears there lie the sounds of color and the light of a sigh. And to hear the sun, what a thing to believe. But it's all around if we could but perceive. To know ultraviolet, infrared and x-rays, beauty to find in so many ways. Two notes of the chord, that's our full scope. But to reach the chord is our life's hope. And to name the chord is important to some. So they give it a word, and the word is... Yeah, so this is a, uh, an interesting bookend, like I said, to the to the beginning of the album. It leads into the last track. Randy just made me fucking shit myself laughing almost. Uh, it also straight up describes what they've been looking for throughout this album, defines the concept of the whole album. He says the lost chord is, and then it leads into the last song, which is Ohm. One more thing I want to talk about before we get there, though. Yeah? This has to be the influence for the intro to Stonehenge by Spinal Tap, right? Absolutely, yeah. Has to. has to be. It has it, to. You just go watch the video for Stonehenge from by Spinal Tap, and it's just. Can we lay the word over that part of Stonehenge in Spinal Tap and see if it works out? Maybe, but it's got to be real close. It's just <laughs> even the the lyrics and everything. Just Stonehenge, where the the whatever the, the dwell, druids the druids were, and I don't remember the words to it. I'm sorry. Uh, Ohm, Matthew. Are we gonna do fucking Stonehenge tomorrow? No, we're not gonna fucking do Stonehenge tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Ohm. Ohm. Heavily influenced by Indian music. Uh, clearly. Typically referred to as raga. Yep. Uh, Sitar, uh, tabla, cello, flute, Celatron mm. all come together to make a beautiful sound here. It sounds like uh, Within within You, Without You Again by yeah. the Beatles, because of course it does. And the word Ohm is repeated throughout the song like a chant, and it is the substitute for the word Aum. Mm-hmm which is a sacred mantra in Hindu, Sikh, and Buddhist religions. And lo and behold, the word, which is Om, is the lost chord referred to in the song's title. Sounds a little bit like this. Definitely a, a, a fascinating close to this psychedelic album. Uh, as I've always said, the flute is a wonderful instrument and I love it. There's no contradiction to that ever. Uh-oh. I'm so relaxed right now. I feel great after all this chanting. Uh-oh. Also, in other news, I'm going to be running for the Republican Senate seat in Nevada, <laughs> as I've always loved the flute. Oh, yeah, uh, right? Those are all I, lies. I, I've, I've always loved the flute. I'm a, I'm a wonderful proponent of the flute in rock and roll music. It's a suitable closer for the psychedelic album. I agree. It fits. And that is In Search of the Lost Chord yeah. by the Moody Blues. And I would say, while I most likely will not become a full-fledged fan of the band going forward, Fair enough. I do like some of their sound. It's a pretty good record. I'll probably go on to explore at least the other records by them that surround this period. 
period, see what else they got around yeah. there. Days of Future Past, but really good pick, Kyle. Thank you. And uh, like now, I said, it was definitely a, a an off the wall pick. Uh, it was not something that I was incredibly familiar with before I started listening to it more heavily to do the research for this. And I've, I'm kind of, I don't want to say that I've tapped out, but uh, can I, we get out of the '60s for a while? I can. Please? We can try to get out of the '60s for a while. Just, yeah. Can we at least get out of the '60s? But I, I really did. I, I got to a point where I was trying to make this list of what albums I want to do, and I've gone through all the ones that I have really personal connections with. So now almost I've, everything that I'm going to pick moving forward, unless I come up with something like, oh shit, I should do that album. Um, a lot of this really is. I think you have more and then you're just not thinking of them. Probably. I think. Well. Yeah. I think there are more connections. <laughs> Some of them. Part of the trick there is too. It's albums that I want other people to actually enjoy and listen to. That's okay. <laughs> Nobody wants to listen to the Jive Bunny and the Master Mixers single, single of uh, whatever the two songs were that he came out with in the early 90s. Uh, that's true. Nobody that was, wants to that listen was the to that. Fir- that was the first. But I'm sure uh, there's uh, pop music, music that you enjoyed and connected to. True. And extrapolate on that and find like the one single and go, what album was that on? And there might be something there. Yeah, fair enough. And if you would like to tell Kyle that he's an old soul because he that. keeps picking records that are actually older than I am. You can get a hold of us uh, any number of ways. You can get us. Uh, you could get us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash audio judo, Twitter at audio judo, or Instagram at audio underscore judo. And if you want a quick response, you can get a hold of us at info at audio judo.com. We will probably respond to that very quickly. You want to give a shout out to uh, absolutely patrons? to our patrons who we love and are supporting the show. Uh, shout it out loud to your Simon. Welcome. Uh, I believe this is the second episode that we've shouted out to you. So welcome, please. Uh, uh, front receipts to Aaron P, Darlene W, and Michael A. Uh, thank you so much for your support. Backstage past here, Christian S, David W, Michael S, and Scott K. Thank you guys very much. You allowed us to buy some beer for this episode. Uh, we have episodes coming up from No Doubt, Talking Heads, Marvin Gaye, our annual fourth annual holiday episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, please keep coming back. Don't forget to check out Audio Judo, Judo Does Jazz and Throughline. And then until next time, uh, bye bye, everybody. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 